Hi, I'm Ryan Jennings, and this is a Kiwi original. Glenn Herod is who we're talking to today about happy cow milk. And Glenn, well, he's a visionary when it comes to the future of milk supply globally. His milk factory in a box innovation is the latest in the trend towards dispersion of technology away from centralized solutions. What does that mean? Well, in the case of milk, Glenn is solving the problem of how do we make it so farmers around the world can sell to their local customers. Obvious, right? Well, not so much. Distribution, bottling, pasteurization, loading and unloading, washing everything, they're expensive activities in milk production. So in the 20th century, this was solved by centralizing all of those activities. In the 21st, Glenn believes a distributed solution closer to the farm gate will prevail. I love how open Glenn is about his mission, the failures along the way, and where things are at now. Amazing chat. Let's take a listen. So happy cow milk, Glenn Herod, you're an ex-farmer or a continuing farmer, but what's the thing you want to bring to milk that consumers currently don't have access to or farmers aren't able to do? Because those are the, the two parts of the equation, aren't they? Yeah, I suppose originally the, the, the original thought was your farming's becoming so big that in order to get started in farming, you still need to have a significant amount of capital. So the real thinking was, well, how can I go farming um, without needing, you know, really a million dollars in equity? And the simple calculation was, well, if you can milk a cow and sell her milk for $3 a litre instead of getting 50 cents from Fonterra, surely you can make a business out of that. <laughs> and uh, you can make a business out of that, but it's not easy. So that's really the start of the journey. Uh, so it was really around... Uh, a small farmer selling direct to the consumer. So in order to do that, you have food safety regulation, you've got milk processing, you've got distribution, you've got sales and marketing, which is the whole value chain. And, um, you know, we were successful in, I suppose, a number of areas. Well, I suppose if you think of it as a three-legged stool, we could only ever really get two legs working at once. Um, and uh, that's really what uh, the... The next stage of Happy Cow Milk is about is how do we actually streamline the system? How do we make it so farmers around the world can actually sell direct to their, cons uh, to their local customers? That's interesting. So that's obviously a, there's a broader trend that this plugs into, right, around the direct to consumer. That's happened, uh, that's been happening for 20 years, but certainly through 2020 with the pandemic, it's accelerated. Manufacturers have wanted to sell direct to where they couldn't um, sell through retailers or distribution was disrupted. What's the, you mentioned, you know, the, the two out of the three stools. What are those three different pillars? And what's the hard one that you're, that you're that, that's the hardest one to stand up? Well, I suppose selling milk direct to the customer, I mean, you can sell T-shirts or, or hardware or, or anything like that relatively simply, but uh, selling milk is a perishable product and it's also a highly regulated product. So there's, um, that's essentially what Happy Cow is solving. So when I say we've got the three-legged uh, three stool, there's basically you've got your sales and marketing, and I put distribution in that. You've got your milk processing and then your actual farming. So 
the farming was actually the easy part because you put cows in a paddock and they eat grass and produce milk and, you know, the, the 80-20 principle dictates that if you do it, you know, you do the basics well, you can farm relatively well. But then the processing was was too inefficient. Um, lots of bottling and um, you're just processing at small scale was inefficient unless you spend significant amounts of money, which, um, which uh, I didn't have the opportunity to do. And then the next one was really distribution. Um, the sales and marketing was pretty easy, um, but distribution, um, I think most entrepreneurs or business people will tell you is a real, real killer that will kill your business. <laughs> it certainly killed mine. So how are you approaching it now with the, the distribution side of it? So I suppose we were, <clears throat> when, when I shut the business down, we, we had so much support from the public uh, who wanted to, I suppose, keep uh, wanted to see us keep going and had a bit of time to really do a lot of reading and just think about things and really analyze the, the finances and to figure out where the costly part of the business was and where, the, where, um, where all the losses would be made. And as I alluded to before, it's that uh, milk processing, it's really around the amount of labor. So anything that required labor, we needed to strip out uh, and that was around bottling and uh, actual pasteurizing milk. And then it's the stuff you don't think about. It's unloading and loading. It's connecting um, pumps to vats and then it's washing everything at the end. So we've built this, what we call a, well, a, milk, um, a milk processing hub, a milk factory in a box. And the, the principle is, is that we have these bulk containers, uh, like a 100-litre uh, tank. And that tank is um, a pasteurizer and a storage tank. And you place these inside the hub and the farmer fills them up with milk. Um, they push the button, the milk is pasteurized and cooled down. And then that's all they need to do. They don't have to um, bottle it or, or handle that processed milk. And then they take that entire container, that 100 liter container and deliver it to you know, the, the retailers or the cafes where it's uh, dispensed via our dispenser. So. The efficiency there is we've just eliminated the amount of work you do on a farm, so the amount of handling, the amount of labour needed, and also we've um, streamlined distribution by de delivering a bulk tank. So you could, instead of delivering to a cafe you know, three times a week like I was doing, you could do it once a week. So this milk factory in a box, you've effectively turned what was a series of processes, tasks and activities that take the milk that's been taken, milked from the cow, and put it into the bottles that are ready for retail sale. And you're doing this all at the farmer's gate. So the farmer then gets all of the, I would assume, the increase or that delta of margin between um, them getting the milk produced and being able to sell it at retail rates rather than selling it at mm. scale to for someone else to do that part of adding yeah. the margin. Yeah, so essentially we're, we're turning, turning the farmer into a processor and the distributor, so they get the margin that would normally go to those uh, those parts of the value chain. And, <clears throat> you know, it's when you actually sit back and you analyse, you know, where were the hours spent every single day and where's the risk and the, the labour? And we identified that it's really handling pasteurised milk. So when you're, when you're dealing with raw milk, uh, the standards are much uh, much lower because uh, the the regulators assume that raw milk is contaminated, and once it gets pasteurised, it, it, 
it's considered to be pure. So once you pump like, um, let's say, pasteurized milk, you pump it out of a pasteurizer and into, say, a bottling machine, all that part of the processing has to be super clean and super hygienic because the, the risk of contaminating that pasteurized milk is too great. So when you see operators with um, you know, white overalls and white boots and their hairnets on and, and in a um, filtered air room and things like that, that's because they're handling pasteurized milk. So to solve that problem, you need a lot of equipment, yeah, a milk factory, all those sorts of things. We basically said, well, let's just put raw milk in a tank. You seal the tank. It's airtight. Nothing can happen to it. You push the button. It pasteurizes and cools down. And then it never sees the light of day until um, it attaches to a dispenser. Wow. So that's essentially removing the risk of contamination. And I, I suppose um, you take a bit of uh, insight into the IKEA story where distributing a chair or a table was expensive. So you uh, flat pack it and make the customer do it. So for us, washing reusable bottles and filling them is expensive. So we, uh, we ask the customers to do that. How exciting. There's, there's two trends there, isn't there? One is decentralization of production. Mm -hmm. It's now mm -hmm. can be produced at not one or five or 10 places, but thousands or 10,000s because of this mm. other trend that you've picked up on or, or managed to do around, um, it's a micro version of a large pasteurizing factory, right? Like if I go through a, a cheese plant, the as you say, the, the restrictions, I'm wearing a hairnet, I'm wearing a white coat, I've got white overalls on. Um, it, it's huge because you're going through there into mm -hmm. an environment that's producing food with pasteurized milk. That's right. Well, Actually, it's interesting as well. When you look at um, a modern pasteurizer, uh, they would use, um, I suppose, high temperature, short time processing. So it's uh, they use heat exchangers, plate heat exchangers, and you, you heat the milk for seventy two degrees for um, uh, fifteen seconds. So that's how most modern milk is produced, and it's um, from a thermodynamic perspective, it's very efficient. Uh, the amount of heat in and um, heat out is is the most efficient way of doing it. But those are complicated machines. And if something goes wrong, um, it's, uh, it's a disaster. So there's lots of uh, checks and balances and things that have to happen. So what we've done is we've actually gone back to 1950s type technology, batch pasteurizing. And so old technology that people think is inefficient. And by putting a little computer on the lid, we now put it into the hands of lay people and it now becomes actually more efficient when you put it into the context of a farmer who's getting 60 cents a litre, give them a relatively inefficient pasteuriser, but it simplifies all the other aspects of um, milk pasteurising. So I find that quite interesting. So it's really a, a you're kind of heralding a, a shift away from the centralised model. And mm. for the first 10 minutes of our chat now, we've been talking a lot about a manufacturing product, which is probably a, a different avenue of where I was expecting to go on this. So, of, of you know, the happy cow milk company, I thought we were going to be talking about milk. Has most of your time since we last caught up in person in the last couple of years, has it been focused on how to create this product rather than how do we distribute the milk? Um, or are they the same question? Yeah, well, all, all our fans, they want to hear about happy cows and happy calves. And they also want to hear about reusable packaging. And 
basically in in order to this let's let's look at this two ways in order to get happy cows and happy calves we have to really step outside the traditional dairy model because up until even today it's really really hard to find any dairy farmers around the world who who will leave their calves with their mothers so we have to find those select farmers that will do that and give them the opportunity to sell direct so it gives them a, i suppose a competitive advantage or gives them a, an uh, an avenue to be individual so if you're a farmer supplying Fonterra or any of the milk companies and you keep your calves with their mothers there's no way of you being singled out and uh, customers can choose you so that's why we that's one of the reasons why we're doing the on-farm processing the other one is the reusable packaging which is a huge driver of our our, um, our brand and what our customers are passionate about and reusable packaging doesn't work under a long supply chain so or the centralized system is too inefficient because you're not going to fill a truck up with empty bottles and drive it a thousand kilometers to the milk factory so localized production or this decentralized production actually enables reusable packaging to become a viable uh, viable option so that's why we've gone down that track and decentralization um, is, is a trend and it's um, it's enabling us to do things what we used to do back in the, the 50s and 60s I suppose it's the it's like back to the future that's technology enabled to make it happen mm. and where those shifts happen like my backgrounds in telecommunications and there's there's times for centralization there's times for distribution it's like a pendulum and there's mm. certain things that need to happen and it's, it's almost impossible to switch and then it's almost impossible not to. Where are we in that journey, um, do you think, with happy cow milk? Um, I think we're at the stage where people don't actually understand what we're building and they can't actually see what we mean, um, particularly from the farmer's perspective. And I think, you know, give us six months in the market and people will understand and then it, I think the penny will drop with a lot of people of like, oh, I see what they're doing. And I mean, our, our vision uh, is to be a global company. So we're building a system. Well, I wanted to be like a, a platform that could be like a, a SaaS company where you can onboard customers, you know, relatively easy. But how do you take a, you know, a milk company with hardware and make that, you know, a SaaS company? So really we've built this so that, um, we, we kind of build this flywheel where we get a farmer um, and if we can attract farmers, we then supply them with the equipment, turns up on a truck, they basically plug it into the internet and all of a sudden they're now compliant with food safety um, regulations. And then what we do is then we say, well, we've got this farmer on the outskirts of Geelong and then we say, let's go and find five cafes or five schools or retailers. So how do we do that here from Christchurch? Well, how do we help that Geelong farmer actually recruit them? And then once they're all signed up, we then go and get the customers. So they have to download the Happy Cow app and we can do that digitally. We can do it in person. There's a whole range of ways we do it. So what we're building is this, this turnkey solution. So we say, right, we've got farmer. Now get his, his or her customers before they've even outlaid any capital. You know, they'll say, oh, we're interested in this Happy Cow thing. So then our team just goes in and finds all their customers. Um, they've all got the app downloads. And then we say, right, well, there's no risk for you. Here you've got everyone signed up. Um, they pay for the hardware and um, away they go. And we can sort of, and we call that our core transaction, basically one farmer, 50 cows, 
1,500 households, and they'll sell, sell about 1,000 litres of milk a day. So let's say we do that once in Geelong, and then you do it once in Melbourne, and then maybe you do it on the other side of Geelong. And it's really about um, making the farmer the hero of the story, making them the um, building these little communities of customers and farmers and, and um, resellers all working together to basically make the world a better place with a you know, better dairy and um, getting rid of that plastic. I love that model because it takes advantage of the the key problem with any marketplace is supply and demand balancing at equilibrium so both parties get what they want, particularly the, mm. the demand part needs the right price and needs a reason to switch and the yeah. supply part needs a reason to invest or change, which mm. is, and you're actually at least at the early stage uh, helping the farmer by reducing the capital and then creating the demand for that farmer so mm. that they've got people to sell to it with the, the level of 50 cows and 1,500 households. Mm. That's, that's really interesting. Well, it's, if you think about it, you think like, let's say you're Fonterra and you decide, oh, we want to get into the Berlin market. And just think about the, what you'd have to do to do that. You'd have to have contract supply or um, processes. You'd have all the agreements with retailers you'd have to go in at scale and put some serious investment in there and then you'd need to develop the brand. So it's really almost impossible for a New Zealand company to do this. But if you just go at the very, very small scale and we say, we just need one farmer, on, you know, and can we find 1,500 customers in Berlin? <laughs> you bet we could. Um, especially when you've got a, um, a, uh, the brand principles that we stand for, you know, are quite different. They're quite um, unique, this reusable packaging and their the farming system and the animal welfare, you know, um, we could just have that one customer. And if we never get any any more um, farmers in Berlin, well, it doesn't matter. He can just or she can just run along um, by themselves. You know, there's no risk to us having to get, you know, uh, 5% of that market. We can just get a little fraction. And we can go around all around the world to these major cities and just getting one farmer everywhere just to sign up. And, um, yeah, well, anyway, that's the plan, but. <laughs> Nothing ever goes to plan. The economics and the numbers of it sound right because I think the the early vision was you know how to transform the whole market, which is is very difficult um, because as you know just approximately I'm thinking you know instead of fifty cows and fifteen hundred households, maybe you need five million cows and fifteen million households, and mm. then you you're just becoming a, a um, competitor to the incumbent. Whereas the way the single origin coffee guys and girls started was they just went for the hipsters and someone that wanted something new and different. There was no yeah. competition as in terms mm. of Starbucks didn't see it as competition. In fact, if you fast forward 10, 15 years, it's upped everyone's coffee game so that granules isn't the average. Granules is now below average. So mm. once you're successful, and I'm sure with the you know, a SaaS model, it'll be easier to attain that. Um, you'll mm. actually shift the quality standards, maybe of the milk, or it could be of the production, or it could be somewhere else in the ecosystem. Yeah, it's interesting. So I read a book um, called Simplify in the last days of Happy Cow, and really talked about when you look at companies that actually innovate, uh, a lot of them actually drop the price considerably. 
And I suppose you look at McDonald's where, or, or Ford. Ford's a good example. The production line dropped the cost, yet employees also had a massive wage increase. And, you know, that got me thinking. I'd always thought, you know, we need to be a premium product. And then the idea was, well, actually, maybe that's the wrong answer because you're selling little amounts of milk at lots of different outlets. And the idea was, well, how do we make this so that we can be a, a budget milk or a cheap milk? Um, and that's when really you start thinking about efficiency and start thinking about how you produce things differently. And just what, on what you were saying about raising the level, what I'm getting at is that we're going to hit the market at the average price of milk, yet the brand attributes, the animal welfare, the environmental attributes, and it's in reusable packaging will be far greater than any of the competitors. Um, so it's, I think that's an interesting strategy. It is because the premium price works when you're early on in the um, in the momentum of the swing because you you want those that are at the edge, which is sustainability and want to do the right thing. But that was probably 20 years ago. We're in the midst of sustainability is way beyond mainstream now. It's it's urgent. It's it's for laggards too because of the climate problem and it's well recognised everywhere. So you're. It's the right thing to go in with a, a lower cost and mm. work out well, where does that cost get saved? And you're doing that through less handshakes to get product to customer. Yeah, and also, I mean, you know, being sustainable shouldn't be a premium only available to, you know, wealthy people, you know. Um, you know, doing the right thing should be a, a mainstream thing. So that's really the thinking around it. So. Uh, I mean, we're yet to hit the market uh, full steam, so we have to test all this out, but that's the plan. We'll get there eventually. It's not going to happen straight away, but we'll get there. The New Zealand-made Kiwi trademark is relied upon by over 1,500 New Zealand businesses to gain a market origin advantage in the markets they operate, both domestically and internationally. Check to see if the good service or software that you make is eligible at buynz.org.nz. So you've been crowdfunded for this milk factory in a box. Then the next mm. stage is, okay, there's money there, there's capability. You've got a group of fans that have voted with their money. They want to see Glenn do this. What was the next step and how far along the journey are you with actually manufacturing that milk factory in a box? Well, it's funny, like, um, so the business shut down uh, and, you know, I was literally brushing up my CV to get a job and <laughs> no one would employ me because everyone online was saying we need to get this company going again. So we, we used Patreon and people supported us for a year and a half just straight from donations. And that enabled me to come up with this plan. And then last November, we went to our crowd and basically all we had was a plan. We had nothing else to show for it. And we sold 20% um, of the company for $400,000. And for the last 12 months, we've been, uh, well, we've used that money to basically build a system. So we've built all the cloud architecture, the, the apps for the, the farmer app, the reseller app, the customer app, and um, uh, the pasteurizer. We built the hub and um, basically got the dispenser working and uh, we're just about to, well, next week we're going to sort of 
uh, introduce it to all our shareholders and um, and depending on when MPI sign us, uh, give us our certification, we'll uh, we'll do a little trial in Christchurch. So that's kind of where we're at. And then we're about to do a, another crowdfund where we'll raise the next lot of money to uh, to basically scale. Okay, so the rough numbers in my head there is the company was valued at around $2 million at the, the time you did the, the crowdfund based on the, the 80 pence cent that's left. Yeah, 1.7 million. I mean, how do you value a company? It's just an idea. <laughs> and this is the thing. These are This is where, um, I mean, the real story about Happy Cow Milk is that we, we're just customer-driven. Like the customers or the fans have really just driven this along and um, enabled us to to keep going. And, you know, if you talk to professional investors, they wouldn't have invested in this company. And even today, I mean, I'm still talking to them. But, um, it's really hard to get an angel investor um, across the line at this early stage. And really, if we didn't have this funding, well, I wouldn't be able to do it because I've already ploughed all my money into it in the first iteration. So it's the the seed money for the idea that then the next step is find those 1,500 households once the first factory in a box is created and a, a farmer has it and is able to produce milk within that proximity of a city or town. That's the hmm. – do you know which one in New Zealand that'll be? Like, Would it be the first oh, place? We've got interested farmers all around. We've got our first farmer signed up in the Waikato. Uh, but we're based in Christchurch, so we're um, we're talking with a farmer in Canterbury at the moment. We'd like to um, start the first one down here, so we can uh, troubleshoot and fix things down here close to HQ. Um, so launch in Christchurch, test the system, make sure it's working. Basically, we're going to have to go through various iterations of of hardware and electronics, I assume, and change some code in the way we do things. And then when it's really bulletproof. That's when we're going to uh, start sending it around the country to farmers to operate on their own. And then once we've got that and we've ironed that out, it would be um, uh, just start seeding farms around the world. What have you learned about manufacturing through this, both uh, the good and bad of um, manufacturing in New Zealand and, and some of the components and, and sourcing also from overseas? Actually, the thing I thought was the easiest to solve, the most basic, less tech part of the problem, has actually been the most difficult, and that's been our stainless steel tanks. Obviously, we're dealing with 100-litre pasteurisers, and those are um, its pretty rare in New Zealand. And while the, it's a fairly simple process, you get stainless steel and you you know, you know, bend it up and then you, uh, you TIG weld it and then you polish all the welds to a, a food-grade standard. So that's... It's not hard, it's just that it takes a bit of labour. And in New Zealand, I suppose you you pay someone $30 an hour to weld up each tank. The cost adds up. Just to give you some examples, you know, the quotes from New Zealand are coming around 3,000 up to 10,000 a tank. And um, we're getting our one-off tanks made in China at um, $1,000 New Zealand. Wow, so it's a three, so what two thirds less, or even less than that, ninety percent less? Yeah, and that's including freight. <laughs> and yeah, so we obviously we had when we, we raised our money. I was starting talking to China. We we're just going to quickly get a few tanks over here and get moving. And then COVID hit, well, Chinese New Year, and then COVID, and China was shut. So I thought, well, we can't really rely on China anymore. So we started through the um, trying to get New Zealand manufacturing done through the early part of last year. 
and I suppose what happens is if you're a manufacturer in New Zealand, you've really got your you've got your business model set. You know what you make. You either make tanks for Frontera or Sinlay or you um, or something like that. And when someone like me comes along and says, "Well, we need this tank and it needs to be light, so it needs to be made out of you know 1.2 mil stainless." Um, they're thinking, well, that's too thin. <laughs> I'll say, no, we can't do it. Oh, you'll blow holes in it. I won't weld anything less than 1.6 and all these sorts of things. And you have to really, I find the struggle is actually finding people who who want to do it because many people are capable, everyone's capable of, obviously there's people in China doing it. It's just, um, they've got their business. They're really making money doing what they're doing and it's not in their best interest to fiddle around with some you know tiny little tank so that's probably been the biggest issue for me is really people wanting actually just wanting to invest the time and think how can you do it so um anyway we've done that and we're uh, uh we haven't quite decided but there's i think we're going to go to callahan um shortly uh, and apply for an r d grant because we've got a, a cunning way of making these tanks Well, hopefully this podcast and story will go to the right places and maybe I can send it to a couple of places and uh, twist some, uh, twist an arm or or two. And it might just be, at least at your size and scale, uh, it might just be one person that you need at the moment or or do you need a company in a production line? Yeah, no, no, it's just one person. But actually the, the real problem is me. The real problem is I have unreasonable expectations and... You know, we've put a price at $1,500 a tank, including everything. Um, and that's the electronics and everything on there. So, you know, it's not going to be easy to get there. But when you put a, a restriction in place or you put a, um, a, a roadblock like that, it makes you think in um, different ways. So we, we've, you know, been <laughs> rummaging around this idea for 12 months trying to fix it. And I think... Um, I think we'll get there. But like it, like I say, it just comes down to a, a labor. I mean, if you just put eight hours at $30 an hour, you know, and you spend two days on that, well, then you're already, you know, you're, you're already above that um, that target. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm unreasonable, put it that way. I like unreasonable people because they're sticklers for their vision and they, they look at things through a different lens. The, um, the two things that came to mind there was, the aerospace burgeoning aerospace industry in Christchurch. There's going to be oh, yeah. some good manufacturing contacts there. Uh, there's someone else I just connected for their electronic side. It's a very large New Zealand business that uh, has got scale at taking prototypes to um, to full production, miniaturizing mm-hmm. it, and just taking almost all the cost out of it. If someone's mm. already got prototypes and plans, and they're always looking for people who have the prototypes and plans, not the ideas, but the prototypes yeah. and plans. Uh, so maybe I can connect you with them as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In your side time, I was looking at your, um, your, you're also a contributing writer for stuff. And I looked yeah. back and there's a number of articles like a year ago. And then six months ago, that was your last article. So I, I'm, I'm reading between the lines that for the last six months, things have got pretty busy with your day job, your passion, which is the happy cow milk. No, no. What happened was um, stuff fired all their opinion um, writers. Ah. Uh, the lockdown happened. 
<laughs> well, it's time for them to get you back because I've just been one of the first uh, businesses to advertise on their new platform. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, actually, I, it was good for me. I think I wrote for uh, I wrote for twelve months, and writing one column a week is actually quite hard, and I found it really difficult. And it would take me two days to write an article at the start, and at the end, I think I've become a better writer. So it was. It was interesting, but it's it's really funny. Every time you write a column, uh, you just get outraged people from either side. And then you write a column the next week, and then different people are outraged. But there's always someone outraged. <laughs> you, you you pick up a good point. Like writing um, does make you a better writer. It also, I think, orders your thoughts so you can articulate the great ideas better. Uh, and I always, um, like with this podcast and, and with the, the content we put out for Buy New Zealand May, I actually mm-hmm. get concerned if there's no outrage. If if <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. group that doesn't like it, great. It means there's a point that's been made. If there's nothing on either side, it's not. It's really a puff piece. It's not actually. Mm. It's not deep. It's not. It's not what it could have been if you had gone deeper. Yeah. No, that's right. And it's funny. Like I would sit there and think, "Oh, I'm going to write about this. I know all about it." And then you'd sit down to write it, and you're like, "Oh, actually." Oh. And also, <laughs> if you write something wrong. Boy, you get you get told straight away. <laughs> I think my first my first column I had um, uh, horticulture New Zealand um, complained and um, put out a press release to uh, complain about my facts. But uh, I was um, very careful after that. All oh, my facts were still right. But uh, <laughs> um, and also, if you write about Fonterra, you, um, the editor gets a call very quickly in the morning. <laughs> it's different when you put those words into a, a newspaper than if you put them in into a social media post. The same message has uh, has a whole lot more weight. Um, Glenn, what else haven't I asked you about with Happy Cow Milk or or your journey so far? Um, maybe, maybe the the part we we haven't dug into is the part that a lot of business owners actually don't want to share. And you've been quite open in the past about the hard bits. You know, when you when a business doesn't go the way you intend, and, and most startups don't, how did you handle that part? How did how did you get through those dark moments? Yeah, I mean, it does. It's, it's, um, it puts pressure on every aspect of your life. And I suppose if you've got um, weak areas, it's going to... You know, it's going to uh, bring out those weaknesses. And I suppose everyone knows that, um, you know, family life suffers. And, you know, we work just, you just work so hard to try and get this thing going. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was, you know, it was the end of my uh, my marriage. So that was a 20-year relationship. And, you know, I don't think the, it wasn't the business. I think the business just brought it to a head, basically, and you start having to deal with the, the issues that, Maybe you don't deal with, but you know I've got a friend as well um, who is a failed startup. Um, was very successful, got lots of money, and any and ended up still failing. And boy, it, he struggled. He's still probably three or four years out from the failure, and it's um, it's really hard. And I think this is the uh, the it's not spoken about enough, I suppose. You know, when when people do fail, because for instance. I mean, you, you, you try to be, you try to manage a risk as best you can, you know, and, um, you know, you only allocate a little bit of money and then you just need a little bit more money. And of course, the bank wants a, um, you know, a personal guarantee. So now your house is on the line. And 
and then that brings on stress. And then when things don't go well, you, you know, you, we basically, basically the way uh, deciding to shut down meant that I had to sell, we sold all our assets and basically came out at zero. And, you know, that's, uh, I guess that's just the way it goes. And I think if you're not prepared to do that, then I probably think it probably isn't right for you. But uh, yeah, I mean, only do a startup if you can't not do a startup. It's true that that um, the startup part and the the you you pin so much hopes on it, and you have to be so driven by the vision, and sometimes that cash flow doesn't match how long <laughs> you need. The vision's still correct, and it's not always in your control. I had a you know my my best friend, um, he was in the uh, hotel and accommodation scene. You know, chief exec of a, a, um, a New Zealand company, which I, I won't name. And he left that to do his own startup. And th- this was a, a riff off something that was already successful in the US, you know, an app-based version of, of booking. And, um, and, you know, two years later, and, you know, family in the business, funding had gone. He had to shut it down, take all the mm. code off online, go back to corporate. And, and he really still couldn't deal with it, you know, five, six years later. And through through COVID, even though he'd, he'd become very successful in, um, you know, in his his work back in a listed company, um, you know, he's no longer with us. He, he really, it, it brought him down. And there were other contributing factors, but, um, you know, taking his own life um, wow. because he saw there was a level that he wanted to get at and he, and he couldn't get to it. And I think... Um, the the lack of ability in New Zealand with New Zealand people businesses to accept that failure actually gives someone more resilience if they're going to go at it again. Failure isn't failure of the person; it's of the business model at that time. Like Facebook and Instagram and Airbnb. Those models aren't necessarily new. There was previous ones. They just happened to be in the right time slot as well. And I and I think, and I hope for your sake that, because you already know, right, that two years ago wasn't the right time slot. And, and now might not be, it might be six years from now, but as long as you can take the little steps with this new model, then, then it, you get to play the game for the next six years to find out. I can't afford it. I'm already six years into it. <laughs> it needs to happen now. Um, but the thing you say is true. I think I think it's more a more a man thing, actually. Men seem to they take on their work as their identity. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying women don't, because they do as well. But you know, when you look at the the figures, men struggle with like long term unemployment far more difficulty um, than a lot of women do. And I, we see it a lot in farmers as well, as a lot of the suicide rates quite high in farmers. And farmers fail all the time too. And, you know, when you, I suppose you're, you're trying to be successful and you identify yourself as a successful farmer or a startup founder or something, and then it crashes, it's, yeah, you're losing your identity as well. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I think my identity is this, and I think also a lot of founders have something to prove. They're either, you know, they've, you know, got low self-esteem or something, or they need to prove it to someone or prove it to themselves that they can, you know, be something. And 
yeah, anyway, I mean, I'm sure psychologists have, could have a field day with um, entrepreneurs. I, I think so. My, my own story, um, or, or one of the startups, uh, I started selling MP3 players in 1998. And I'd gone to Germany with a, another a friend of mine that we used to drink. I was 21, and um, we we were in a, a bar, and he's like, "I'm going to this conference in Germany, Seabit." And so hopped on a plane, thought I was going to find something I could resell back here, and there was a, a stand with MP3 players, and I did pretty well off them um, between '98 and 2001. It was a bit scary when pallets of this technology equipment turned up at my flat on the terrace in Wellington and the the guy from Toll's like, okay, where's your loading entrance? And I said, <laughs> I don't have a loading entrance. And he said, well, I'm not taking them through there. So I've got my flatties out and I'm helping and we're unloading all these things in the street while he's double parked on the terrace stopping traffic. And then for the next 18 months in my room and my flatties room is just all these MP, because they're, you know, rack mount, they're everywhere, they're under the bed, they're, my desk is gone, it's just become my desk. Um, and the, the thing I worried about was Sony's gonna come along and they're gonna take this market. And I was scared that I didn't wanna order anymore because by 2001, I'm gonna be out of the game. Mm. And, mm. It, and it wasn't Sony, it was Apple in 2002. And it, and it really wasn't Apple, it, it was really Sonos. And that was 14 years later. And it just, it, it strikes home to me that it, none of that was in my control. It was, it, there was almost none of it I could have really influenced. So to, to tie my identity or success to any part of it, and and so if you if you don't tie your success to the if you don't tie your identity to the failure, you also don't get to tie your identity to the success. I think we often underestimate the amount of luck that also goes into a successful startup. You know, there's often you know very successful people who execute perfectly, and but a lot of it is timing. You just turn up at the right time. Um, and actually being able to identify timing as a, you know, I don't think there's anything as, I don't like to say there's luck, but sometimes there is. And you kind of make your luck, but, you know. I, th I think you, um, the, if you work hard, mm. and this is something my dad used to say, if you work hard and you're at the right place at the right time, then you'll have more chance of more opportunities for luck to strike. Hmm. Yeah, what's the saying? Uh, the harder I work, the luckier I get. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's still a, 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 um, you know, there's a, a lots of 2021 to go, and I think you're on the right side of the, the biggest thing to get right, which is the mind shift of where consumers are at. And mm. you've personally come a long way from two years ago of how this is going to happen. Not the why, the why stayed the same, but the how, there's a clear path there. In my head, I can see now there's 1,500 households in a suburb in Sydney or Brisbane with, with a nearby farmer that has 50, 100, 200 cows that will start to be the dots on the map for the Happy Cow Network. Yeah, so uh, that's right, but we're, what, February already. <laughs> the, the months took over really quickly, and it's actually... Yeah, it's, it's amazing how long things can take to develop, and particularly hardware, because 
you need to make a hardware change. It's hard to diagnose it's a hardware change. It's hard to, you know, you need something new. It's a new PCB board, so that takes three weeks basically to design and print and get back to you. And then, so, yeah, time will go. <laughs> From the New Zealand-made audience and the manufacturers that uh, listen to this show, um, what do you need or what would you like from each of those groups? Actually, electronics is easy. I say it takes three weeks, but the, it's because our New Zealand guys take time. But they just they send the file to China. They print the board. It sends it back three days later. It's amazing. Um, for us, it's, it's stainless steel. But um, going back to that, uh, the same principle of the milk processing, what's the most expensive part? You know, it was bottling and handling pasteurized milk. So we think, what's the most expensive part of our tank? And it's the welding. So how do we build a tank without welding? That's really where we're, um, we're working on now. So, um, and again, going back to old technology, um, metal spinning. It's where you put a big sheet of metal on the lathe and you basically spin it into a shape. It's how they make lampshades and stuff like that. So we're, um, we're investigating that. So anyone knows about metal spinning, we're keen to chat. Metal spinning. I'm going to put that in the show notes, put a link Google, to this. Google. Go to YouTube. It's amazing. YouTube is the biggest form of inspiration for um, entrepreneurs. You can find all sorts of answers to all sorts of issues on YouTube. It is how to everything, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Glenn, it's been a wonderful chat today with you, as deep and meaningful as I knew it, it would be. Thank you for sharing so generously on the Akiri original and Good luck on this stage of the next stage of your journey. Oh, thank you. We appreciate you, um, you know, being in touch, and uh, yeah, we appreciate your support over the years. Oh, look, you're welcome, and, and I know it's um, I know it's just starting, and uh, there's more we can do as New Zealand made to to help you bring happy cows and happy milk to New Zealand, and then to the export markets. Cool. Thanks, mate. You're welcome. That's it for another episode of A Kiwi Original. Remember to subscribe on the podcast or on YouTube to receive the next episode. If you got value from this episode, please share it with someone you think could benefit. See you next time. One of the big things we had right from the start that was, we're going to push that it's New Zealand made. New Zealand made carries a lot of weight outside New Zealand. People don't realize that. Well, you're by New Zealand and uh, we were really motivated by your professionalism at the outset when we first contacted you and that gave us the confidence to reach out to the rest of the New Zealand community to support this. We'll get two, three, four, five inquiries every day from people. And their only question is, are your products made in New Zealand? They don't want to know anything else. We knew there was demand in the market for a New Zealand-made product, firstly, a natural New Zealand-made product. We have got New Zealand made. That was the first thing I signed up to. I was really proud of that. And um, you were very welcoming. So thank you, Ryan. I think it's very, very important to sell in New Zealand as a New Zealand-made product. Originally, we were having to import components from overseas.
it wasn't until we shifted to our carbon fiber model that we were able to say that the product was made in New Zealand and that was a huge, it was sort of a big goal for me. I wanted to have complete control over the manufacturing of it. Definitely it's something that we've been belonged to right from the beginning and it's just put trust, especially New Zealanders, into our product. We've noticed recently people have become so much more discerning about they will upfront and say to you, is it really made here? And not have to rely on other countries and important components, especially in times like these, I'd I'd be I'd have no stock. Being able to front up to that and show your logo and say, well, you know, I don't think a lot of people understand that you have to have a license to show that logo. We have also New Zealand made on some of the other brands selling over overseas. And it's something that people are looking for. The little triangle has been a part of our brand for a long time. Is that a, an investment or is it a cost? You know, can, we, can we spend it given what's going on? I know it's actually good value for us. Yeah, we, we are a Kiwi company, we are proudly Kiwi. It instantly had a, a fruitful conversation without any dancing around or holding back or everything came out and that was that was part of the how why it was so invaluable and so the best way to do that is to, to join the buying and making fan right so i as you will see on any of my social media stuff like yeah i put the buy new zealand made logo i plaster on everything i can pass it on but just being able to prove to people that it is new zealand made and that we've got a story that's great you know pretty proud to be able to do that